Grunty War Stories, episode 21. In this episode, I'm going to talk about the Mile Creek Memorial. So welcome to Frontier War Stories. Uh, before I go any further, I want to give a disclaimer uh, to this podcast because of the content uh, spoken in this episode and other episodes as well. I would like to pay my respects to the country on which I make this podcast uh, and where my guests are from and also the listeners. I'd also like to pay my respects to the Aboriginal people who fought in the frontier wars, which began as early as 1788 and lasted till the 1930s. That's roughly 140 years that Aboriginal people continued to fight and resist. I would also like to pay my respects to all Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people across this beautiful continent. Each episode, I speak with different Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people about books, research, oral histories, which document the first 140 years of conflict and resistance. These times are the frontier wars, and these are our war stories. As I mentioned, uh, this episode will be dedicated to the Mile Creek Memorial, which happens uh, every year uh, around the 10th of January. Sorry, around the 10th of June. Um, a bit of history. On Sunday, the 10th of June, 1838, a group of 10 convict stockmen led by a squatter rode onto Mile Creek Station near what is now Bingara in northern New South Wales and brutally massacred about 28 Aboriginal people, mostly older men, women and children in an unprovoked and premeditated attempt to remove them from what had become pastoral lands. This event became known as the Mile Creek Massacre. And whilst only one of many such outrageous outrage committed across Australia over a hundred year period, it is notable for the fact that it was the first time that the perpetrators of such crimes were brought to justice. Following a second trial, seven men were executed. This did not, however, stop or put an end to the massacres which continued for decades and maintains as a stain on Australian history. Uh, my guest on this episode is Lyndall Ryan, who was a member of the Centre for the Study of Violence and has received numerous honourable mentions in a list of the world's most influential historians. Uh, Lyndall Ryan is the, the lead, the leader of the team behind the Colonial Frontier Massacre Map which documents Aboriginal massacres that has occurred during the spread of the partial settlement in Australia. Our stage four is dropping very, very soon um, of the map, which is due for release uh, later in 2021. It is expected to include 400 more sites. Uh, Lyndall, uh, thanks for joining me uh, on Frontier War Stories again. Thank you for inviting me on board. No, that's all good. Um, 
you know, I've had many discussions with you uh, over the last couple of years now in regards to you know, the work that you are doing, the studies that you have been doing for decades now um, in relation to massacres, uh, colonial uh, violence on the frontier as well. Um, but in particular with this episode, I do want to focus just mainly on uh, Mile Creek and sort of looking at possibly, um, you know, some f- sort of further other... <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. I would also like to look at um, other conflicts in and around uh, uh, this massacre site that may have led to the Mile Creek or, or preceded it after as well. Um, so, yeah, I guess my first um, question would be, um, when did you become aware of uh, the, the Mile Creek uh, Massacre? Good question. It's going right back to the 1980s. I was working um, with a group of very young historians uh, <clears throat> who were contributing to the, Bicel- the Bicentenary History Project um, with the dreadful Bicentenary in 1988, and there were we were working on the 1838 volume. This project had taken a slice approach to Australian history where there would be a volume for every 50 years of uh, colonisation from 1788 right up to 1938. So I was working on the 1838 volume and I thought it was a very useful year because there were quite a few massacres in that year that we knew about, well, that we researched and found out about, of which Mile Creek was clearly the most important. But we also knew that there was uh, quite a few massacres around the area where Mile Creek had taken place. And we also knew that in Victoria, there'd been a massacre of um, white stockmen that had taken place a couple of months just before Mile Creek. So we thought it was a really good year to try and find out as much as possible about what was going on on the frontier. We were very interested to find that it was a very active year for the spread of pastoral settlement and that Aboriginal people were resisting at every inch along the way. And that the settlers and um, uh, mounted police were very, very active in slaughtering a lot of Aboriginal people. So we were trying to get some sense out of all of this very interesting, contradictory information about a very violent time on the frontier. But of course, we had most information Uh, about Mile Creek and we realised how important it was in marking a very significant moment in the spread of pastoral settlement. On the one hand, it was possible that Mile Creek could be seen as as the moment when uh, British law was saying to settlers, 
and police, you can't do this. And that was one way of reading the court case that followed the arrest of um, <clears throat> the 11 um, the eleven stockmen. The squatter, uh, uh, John Fleming, he that it was all very well to get the employees arrested, but the ringleader would always get away, and that ha- that would continue to happen. So we learned a lot about that. We did learn that in the aftermath, there were efforts to arrest um, <clears throat> stockmen for killing Aborigines, but most particularly for engaging in poison. Poison was quite widespread, poisoning of Aboriginal people through poisoning damper, uh, poisoning sometimes water holes, and later on liquor. Uh, alcohol was becoming quite a, a common form of massacre of Aboriginal people. And in the aftermath of Mile Creek, there were efforts to bring those kinds of perpetrators to justice, but they were never convicted. So Mile Creek stands out as a really important moment in that way. We don't have any other... Uh, we have to wait a very long time before <clears throat> the actual perpetrators of massacre are arrested again, but they're never convicted, never. We've got, we're still trying to see if there's a case where people, where perpetrators are actually convicted of massacre. So 1838 and Mile Creek stands out as the big moment. And when we discovered this in the 1980s, that generated my first real interest in the significance of frontier massacres and the real significance of Mile Creek as the only case where some of the perpetrators are brought to justice. You mentioned, you've mentioned quite a bit. Um, you know, you mentioned sort of uh, that year, you know, quite a bit of violence happening all over, you know, with the spread yes. of uh, uh, pastoral leases and uh, and land yes. being divvied out. Um, you also mentioned uh, uh, the killing of, of some white farmers in Victoria. Did that, yes. sort of, like, were there any connections, you know, uh, with sort of what was happening up here? Because I'm sure, at the, was it still New South Wales or was it Victoria? It was in Victoria, but at that stage, Victoria was part, still part of New South Wales, so it was under the legal jurisdiction of Sydney, and it was on the road from Sydney to Melbourne. There was a track, and settlers were coming down from uh, the northern side of the Murray River uh, with lots of sheep and cattle and taking up pastoral leases in what is now modern-day Victoria. And the family that were uh, involved in the massacre, the faithful family, they had, you know, their ancestors had come to Sydney in the the 1790s. They had a a pastoral station around Goulburn. Um, And it was the next generation 
the younger, the next generation of that family that was bringing cattle down to take up a new station, what is now Victoria. So while the members of the family were not uh, directly involved, it was certainly all their employees. And the um, they brought down far too much, too many cattle. They'd stopped at a place which is now near modern-day Benalla uh, on the Broken River. They'd stayed too long to rest the cattle, and the local Aboriginal population were very angry that these people had had too many cattle uh, and were starting to molest the Aboriginal women in the area. So it was a combination of many circumstances, which I think in retrospect, the the stockmen knew what they were doing. They were very experienced stockmen. They'd been doing this work for a very long time, looking after cattle and driving cattle from one station to take up a new station. They seemed to be very experienced men. Um, and they were quite happy to stay in this area, which was well watered. They knew that Aboriginal people were around. They'd stayed for nearly a month, which is a very long time when you're driving cattle. But the point is they had too many cattle and they wanted to make sure the cattle were well fed and watered before they moved on. So the attack in... But as in all of the other massacres... He just cut out, uh, Lyndall. Can you we've say got that? about... Well, could you repeat that again? Them. Sorry, could you repeat that again? Sorry. You just cut out. Oh, sorry, you just sorry. cut out. Could you, sorry. So, okay. What we do know is that in relation to every Aboriginal massacre of white people, and we have 12 such massacres on our map, that in every case, in the aftermath, large numbers of Aboriginal people are killed in retribution. And the massacre at Benalla is no different. But trying to get the details is very difficult indeed. And it's taken, I didn't know anything about the retribution that took place after Benalla in 1838. It's taken me another 20 years or even 30 years to find out more information. So 1838 is a very active year for violence on the frontier. Aboriginal people are really resisting as much as they can, and they're trying to stop the spread of pastoral settlement. They're stopping it, trying to stop it coming into present-day Victoria. They're trying to stop it spreading beyond the Guada River in northern New South Wales where the Mile Creek Massacre happened. They're the two big areas in 1848, north and south of Sydney, where the spread of pastoral settlement is taking place. But it's also a year in which there's a drought. And so this massive uh, arrival of sheep and cattle is causing terrible problems to Aboriginal communities in northern and southern Australia. There's no doubt about that. And so it's a it's a year 
uh, about which we've got a lot of um, information uh, in squatter records, in newspaper records, and in the police records. So we've got a much richer um, sense of the sources that are available for the year 1838. And it's, um, it's, it's, I think it's a watershed year where the um, authorities in Sydney are concerned about what is happening. They're able to convict uh, the, some of the perpetrators at Mile Creek, but the settlers are taking no notice. They're not going to be stopped. They move well beyond the legal boundaries of permissible settlement. They challenge the governor on his authority. And in the end, the squatters win. The, you know, the governor, Governor Gibbs, tries to um, <clears throat> manage what is happening, but in the end, he fails and the squatters win and the wars continue. 1838 could have been a year when settlement is not so much curtailed, but better managed. But the squatters are not going to allow that. And they use all of their power and resources, their influence with members of parliament in London. And in the end, Governor Gibbs has to agree to the spread of settlement, which he cannot control or contain. Mm. So while, while Mile Creek is a moment, it's a moment also, it's a moment where uh, perpetrators are brought to justice, but it's also a moment when the squatters are not going to put up with it. So it's a very, Mile Creek in that sense has important ramifications for the spread of pastoral settlement, not only in New South Wales, but later in other parts of Australia. Mm. And a very, very important uh, uh, a moment as well. I remember before I actually went down to the for the memorial, I watched. Um, uh, it was a dramatized like um, documentary on Mile Creek. Um, it had like obviously the narrator sort of telling the story. Then like had um, some people playing different roles and stuff as well. And I didn't realize until I started looking more into it and uh, and chatting to some people like yourselves and other historians, other Aboriginal people who know the full story, that uh, there was two trials. Um, yeah. Yes. The, the, the group of settlers were well represented um, um, by, you know, uh, you know, the settlers, are, cause, and also remember that all the settlers came together and yes. Um, yes. they had... Um, they had like a group, and they'd call themselves. I believe it was the Blacks. Whenever the they, Black Association, the Black yes. Association, yeah. So, um, in this part of the yard, could you tell us a bit about um, the squatters coming together, um, creating the Black Association, uh, please? And then we'll get on to yes. the trial part. Yes, certainly. Well, when the um, when the uh, the uh, stockmen were arrested and brought to Sydney. There was absolute shockwaves through the settler community. And we have to remember that most of the settlers 
didn't live out there on the frontier. Most of them lived in Sydney or the Hunter River. Uh, most of the expansion of settlement had been from wealthy settlers who lived along the Hunter River and they'd bankrolled uh, a lot of the spread of settlement. So when these um, stockmen were arrested and brought to Sydney, the, the town was just in, in uproar. And so what happened is that the uh, leading settler on whose pastoral lease the Mile Creek Massacre had taken place, and that was a man called Henry Dangarm, and he got together with other settlers along the Hunter River uh, and in Sydney, and they formed what was called the Black Association. We don't exactly know how many people, how many men were involved, but it seems at least 10 or perhaps even 20. But what they did was that they all contributed money to uh, hire the best barristers in Sydney to defend the the stockman who had been uh, arrested and charged with murder. And that's why there were two trials, because in the first trial, uh, the uh, barristers were very successful in in failing to get a in uh, diverting um, the judges from making a conviction, and they we we think they may have to some extent intimidated the jury, uh, who were just simply too scared to make a conviction. So it's, uh, it just shows how controversial the whole trial was. The, um, the leading barristers told the uh, stockmen not to appear in the witness box. They did not have to defend themselves. It was up to um, the Crown to make the case that these men were guilty. <clears throat> So having got off the first time, the Attorney General, however, was determined that these men should be convicted. He felt the evidence was there and he was determined that a conviction should be secured. So he authorised, he ordered a second trial. And in the second trial, there was an, a new judge, um, an uh was put on, uh, was uh, took over the case, and new evidence appeared, was brought forward, and that was the remains uh, of a a child who had been murdered in in the in the massacre, and we knew the name of the child. His name was uh, Charlie. Uh, he had been. Um, everybody had. Uh, the the uh, leading witness who was the hut keeper at Mile Creek had mentioned his name several times and how he'd been taken away and killed by the uh, by the stockman. So having his remains brought forward, it was very and it was obviously the remains of a child rather than uh, an adult. And that 
certainly helped the case, uh, and the and the jury were able to convict um, seven of the eleven perpetrators. So that you know, it's, it was such um, an important trial the second time around, and. Uh, I think the judge the second time had a clearer understanding uh, of what could happen. So he asked more penetrating questions uh, of those who appeared. The key witness was certainly the hut keeper, Charles Anderson. And uh, Henry Dangar came forward and said, oh, I employed this, this man. He was a convict. Um, and he was a born liar, so anything he says, you can't believe. So the judge asked Dangar more penetrating questions the second time around. The uh, the man who reported the massacre, the overseer William Hobbs, who was absent from the station at the time, and we know that the perpetrators knew that he was absent and knew that they could arrive on the station and do anything they like. So they, it was, became much clearer in the second trial exactly how the, um, the, the murderers knew that the, um, that the overseer was going to be absent, uh, that they knew that they could intimidate the hut keeper he did not actually see the massacre, but he heard the, the shots. And there was also a young Aboriginal man working on the station. And although he could not appear because he seemed to have disappeared, nevertheless, the story that he told was submitted and it became important evidence. So it was... Um, it, you know when when the conviction was recorded and the and the um seven of the eleven perpetrators uh were hanged, it was a huge moment, a huge moment in Australian history. It goes down in Australian history as the single most important thing that happened on the frontier where the conviction of at least some of the perpetrators was secured but it would never happen again. And that's why the massacre is so important. Both the governor and the attorney general went to great lengths to get the perpetrators, uh, to get their positions, to get it recorded. And it, it's there in the records today for historians like me to be able to access and read all of that important evidence. And it's such an important moment. And you get a sense of how intimidated um, the hut keeper was. He had to be put in protective custody so that people couldn't get in there and kill him. He was very frightened of his life. We don't know what happened to him afterwards. We think that he continued uh, a life in protective custody for some years. We know that the manager of the station who reported the massacre, uh, he got the sack and he never got a decent job again. Uh, we 
he sort of just fades from history and it's only recently that we've been able to find that, you know, he uh, he was a young man. He was about 25 years old. He was a recent uh, uh, arrival in Sydney and had uh, not long worked at Mile Creek. He was seen as um, an exemplary person who was so shocked when he arrived back at the station at Mile Creek to, to see the remains of the massacre and the fact that the bodies, many, most of the bodies had been burnt and the stench from the burning of the bodies was just so dreadful. And he felt that this had to stop. He knew that the perpetrators had been involved in other massacres, but he couldn't talk about them. So it was a very, an an incredibly uh, important time uh, in Australian history. But even though these men were brought to justice, it was never going to happen again. And I think that's really, you know, the the governor and the attorney general just couldn't do it again. And I think that says a great deal, doesn't it? Oh, Mm. definitely. You know, I think you mentioned it before as well in regards to, um, you know, partialists and sort of squatters really, you know, pushing against uh, the governor uh, in terms of... um, leasing more land or giving more land and yes, and, and absolutely. definitely you know um, yeah. like you, you mentioned some other interesting things as well um because i wanted to have a chat about uh the aboriginal witness as well and um yes. in that time you know were aboriginal people allowed to give evidence no they, they weren't yeah sorry go Yes, they weren't allowed to give evidence. They weren't permitted to give evidence. And uh, the Attorney General tried to get the law changed uh, to enable Aboriginal people who could speak English as this young um, man could. Uh, He'd been brought up on a number of pastoral stations and he uh, was used to make friends with Aboriginal people in the area. And he uh, and the Attorney-General worked very hard to try and get this young man to give evidence so that the other four men who'd escaped conviction might be brought to trial again and convicted and hanged. But the young man appears to have disappeared. We think uh, he certainly disappeared. We think that he was probably killed, but we have no evidence to support that. Uh, I think that his life just became too tough, uh, that he was a marked man, and we think that uh, he was killed. And he had a younger brother who was probably killed also. So it's... um, they were very, it was a very violent time. And if anybody, uh, any Aboriginal person had information uh, that could be submitted in court in another way, then their lives were at risk. And we think that there were a number of young Aboriginal men around at that time who were just killed 
so that their information couldn't be used in any way. So it was a very, very violent, a very tough time for Aboriginal people. And one of the reasons why Aboriginal people weren't allowed to give evidence was because they were Aboriginal or was it because they uh, didn't have like a religious belief? Just simply because they're Aboriginal. Uh, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was, mm, I'm not an expert in this area. You'd have to talk more to a lawyer. But we do have a case quite early on in New South Wales, many decades before, where an Aboriginal uh, person and was considered that the evidence that he was going to give um, <clears throat> was going to implicate white people. I think Aboriginal people weren't allowed to give evidence because it was usually about implicating white people in what they were doing. And it, I think it was a, a form of protection of the white people. Uh, the lawyers were saying Aboriginal people uh, didn't understand the law and therefore they shouldn't be able to give evidence. And it's interesting that it's not until the mid-1870s that Aboriginal people began to be permitted to give evidence in court in New South Wales. I find that extraordinary. There were lots of Aboriginal people around who absolutely knew what the law was all about, and it's interesting that it took so long for this to happen. So it's it's a very interesting story. The Attorney-General, after Mile Creek, did did get the law changed, but it was knocked back uh, by uh, every law had to be approved by the authorities in London. And the Attorney-General did get the law changed in New South Wales, but he couldn't introduce it because it was knocked back in London. So the implications ripple across, you know, the whole of Australia and right back to London. And it's very interesting that the authorities in London said, oh, we don't think Aboriginal people really understand the law in New South Wales, so we can't allow this law to be introduced. Well, quite frankly, the only reason they did that was because they also supported the squatters. There are many members of parliament were members of major um, companies that were bankrolling the spread of pastoral settlement in Australia. And this continues on and on and on for many decades. So I think it's very interesting. It's not until pastoral settlement has really reached its zenith in New South Wales in the mid-1870s, that Aboriginal people are permitted to give evidence in court. In other words, it's all over in New South Wales when they can give evidence. I think this is something that is really part of keeping Aboriginal people out of the legal system. They could have well given evidence at Mile Creek trials. They could have well given evidence in subsequent uh, arrests. Um, And I think this is why cases are never brought to the court because the 
evidence, there's not going to be sufficient evidence to secure a conviction. But if Aboriginal people could have given evidence, I think more convictions could have been secured. So I think Mile Creek is an interesting turning point. This recognition that Aboriginal people have to be kept out of the courts. They can, they can be convicted, but they can't give evidence. Mm. And, it, you know, it's a, it's a really, it's another dimension to the whole pastoral expansion in Australia. Mm. And I think that's, you know, we mustn't forget that. Mm. Um, you've, you mentioned, um, you know, the governor wanting to change this law, getting knocked back. You mentioned yep. um, some of uh, the two people who are, um, or you mentioned the three people, you know, the Aboriginal witness um, eventually dies, gets killed possibly, we don't know what happens, uh, yep. and, the, and the two other men sort of just fade into history as well. Yes, um, they just disappear. They uh, literally disappear. Uh, Decker, on the other hand, <clears throat> who's the landowner, I believe, is that right? Um, uh, or no? Sorry, Danga. Da- so Danga. Danga, yes, da- yeah, Danga. So, uh, what happens to Danga? Well, he um, manages to survive. Um, I think he dies in the early 1860s. He had uh, a large family. He also had many brothers, and a whole extended family become very extensive landowners in New England and in parts of what is now southern Queensland. So the family continues on. Does he does he get more land sort of after this? They get more land. They get more land. They take up more pastoral leases. Uh, and the family is still uh, around in, in New England today. So, mm-hmm. yes, um, he becomes, you know, the, he began life in Australia as a surveyor. He surveyed the the city of Newcastle in the early 1820s when it opened up for free settlement, and he surveys a lot of the pastoral leases uh, along the Hunter River and continues to do so uh, for the Australian Agricultural Company, and then he strikes out on his own and um, he's, you know, he's one of those young settlers who wants to do well for his own family. Um, and he, you know, as I said, the family uh, is still uh, there in the New England area today. Mm. Um, just sort of in wrapping up as well, um, you, you know, you, you kept mentioning uh, the significance of this year you know, yeah. uh, more partialists going out uh, yeah. different parts of New South Wales, south and north uh, yeah. from Sydney. Um, you also mentioned, um, you know, Mile Creek having the significance because of um, the trial and the and the prosecution yeah. and the hanging um, yeah. of, 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 you know, not all, but some of the men who are responsible. Yeah. Um, yeah. We know that in the beginning of... Uh, 1838 uh, in January, uh, the Waterloo Creek massacre happens. Um, yes. Do we know, you know, um, if the men involved in 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 Mile Creek 
are in any, are in any way linked with Waterloo Creek or any or are there any other massacres, you know that uh, these men have gone on to to do prior uh, Mile Creek and also um, you know uh, before and after. Yes, well, we think that a couple of the perpetrators at Mile Creek could have been part of. Um, the Waterloo Creek Massacre, which was in January 1838. It was at the other end of the of the Guada River, really. The Guada River itself is the site of many massacres in 1838, which begins in January with Waterloo Creek. We think that there are others in April and May, uh, which would have involved at least some of the perpetrators at Mile Creek. We just don't quite have enough information, but more people are researching this area uh, along the Guada River today, and I know that we've got some Aboriginal scholars who are doing that. So I think we're going to find more information in due course. We do know that... um, that the uh, the man, the squatter who got away, John Fleming, we know that he was managing his brother's pastoral uh, station up there. And we know that um, that family uh, takes up more stations further north uh, in due course. The What is interesting about Waterloo Creek is that the leader was... Um, It was largely carried out by the mounted police led by Major Nunn and that when he got back to Sydney, he was very proud of the the massacre at Mile Creek and uh, Governor Gibbs, who'd just arrived uh, in Sydney, uh, said, you can't do that. And he did set up a committee of inquiry to look into... uh, examine exactly what had happened at Waterloo Creek uh, and we do we get and we get some information from the sergeant of the in the uh, of the mounted police who gives some interesting information uh, but just as uh, more of the mounted police are about to be interviewed uh, News of Mile Creek comes through, um, and the guy who's conducting the inquiry uh, into Waterloo Creek is immediately sent to investigate the massacre at Mile Creek, and so we don't find out anything more. The, the, The investigation into Waterloo Creek stops, and it's never resumed. So I think that's very interesting. I think that the um, magistrate, uh, Edward Denny Day, who's conducting this um, inquiry into Waterloo Creek, knows a great deal more, but we have nothing from his papers, his own papers, to indicate what is going on. So it's a very interesting year. Uh, We know that We've got the massacre going on in present-day Victoria, and we know now that there was a very big reaction uh, reprisal 
of the people, the Aboriginal people involved in the massacre at Benalla. So it's a year of endless things. We do have more information about 1838 than probably just about any other year on the frontier. I think that's interesting. We are getting, there are records and then nothing after that, virtually nothing, except a few attempts to arrest people for poisoning Aboriginal people, but they just fall over. Uh, They never really get to the courts or only part of it gets to the courts and the trail fades very quickly. So I think 1838 remains a year that gives historians like me a lot of information that there's a lot of things going on the frontier and we get a brief look and then the blind is drawn and we're not going to know much more. So everybody goes, takes great lengths to cover up what they're doing, to not talk about this code of silence takes over and then they're not, nobody's going to talk about it. People know things are going on, but they're not going to talk about it. So what I, what historians call the code of silence descends and trying to get information is very, very difficult. No one is going to talk. Mm. And, and so they don't want Mile Creek, they don't want the court cases about Mile Creek to happen again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think people are bought off. They're told to stay silent. They're intimidated or they're given money or they're given a better job or they're sent away. You know, all these things happen. And the, the frontier goes into this period of great silence and trying to break that silence is really been, uh, uh, well, I've probably been trying to break that code uh, myself, along with many other historians, we're doing, trying to crack the code, trying to find out what's happened. And often you have to wait until a longer period of time has passed. And sometimes the perpetrators might speak out many decades later when fear of arrest or fear of reprisal from other perpetrators is no longer around and they might talk. Um, But, you know, it's not widespread, but we do get some cases where they might talk in reminiscences or memoirs or they might talk to a journalist in a newspaper and it's 40 years later, you know. Mm. But you can build up it. You can build up some information, but nobody talks at the time. Mm. So that's really another outcome of 1838 and Mile Creek. One thing that I forgot to mention as well, um, you know, this was, yeah, Mile Creek was a premeditated uh, uh, massacre. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, yeah, yeah, like you have proven. Um, so the people that were massacred were the elderly men, the women, and the children. Um, yes. At that time, um, I believe uh, the men were off at another station working. 
they were. They had been invited over to an adjoining station uh, about um, 20 k's away uh, where they were uh, cutting bark from trees to assist the uh, overseer of an of the adjoining station. These men had proved very good workers in the past on other stations. But this group of Aboriginal people were very well known. They had worked on at least two other stations that we know about. Again, we think that the perpetrators of Mile Creek knew that these men were working at another station. So again, it was a good time to come in and kill those Aboriginal people who were least able to defend themselves. And I think that's what shocked most of all the manager of Mile Creek when he came back. He knew that these men had gone off to another station to work these people were left vulnerable to attack. So as a premeditated attack, the perpetrators knew exactly what was going on. They knew what was going on in all the surrounding stations and they struck at a critical moment. And that was, you know, and many of the massacres happen like that. When the men, the warriors who could perhaps offer some defence were not there. And, I, you know, that's particularly dreadful about Mile Creek. But I think one could say the same about a whole number of other massacres that were going on at that time and later on as well. It's It's not a defining feature, but we do have a number of massacres that we've been able to find um, where the the leading warriors were away. And it indicates that they all knew each other, that the perpetrators knew some of these uh, Aboriginal people. They knew that they were on another station. So... It's, it, it just gets worse and worse. But the more you find out, the more horrifying Mile Creek becomes. And that is why Mile Creek, another reason why it's so important, that it gives us clues, so many clues about how many of these massacres have. In other words, it shows that the perpetrators were cowards. And many of the perpetrators of these massacres are cowards. They're not, you know, they really are taking advantage of a situation where Aboriginal people were vulnerable. And that's what they took advantage of. We find that in many cases. But in Mile Creek, we have the very best evidence of that. The cowardly behaviour of the perpetrators must never be forgotten. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and, you know, this story needs to still continue. Um, each year, the organising committee, uh, which I believe is Friends of Mile Creek, do an amazing yeah. job to commemorate, to remember, to honour, yeah. and to bring people together. This is the second time that I've been to uh, the memorial. Uh, the last time was, would have been almost, you know, seven, eight years ago, almost 10 years ago now. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, and, and they, yeah, I can't say, you know, can't stop saying too much uh, good things about uh, the community and how they've handled, you know, the last 20 years of, you know, really, really shining a, a, a light on this and sort of bringing people um, uh, uh, to to this discussion, you know, which opens up a broader discussion, as we've mentioned throughout this episode and throughout this whole podcast. Um it opens opens it up to looking at sort of you know the many other places around this country uh, yeah. these horrific things have happened, but sadly stay silent because you know uh, not many people uh, know about it. Um, uh, Lindell, thank you for coming on uh, Frontier War Stories, uh, being part of episode twenty one. It's always great to have a chat with you. Well, thank you both for having me. And uh, I'm very pleased that you're having um, uh, an episode on Mile Creek because we, you know, it really is um, such an important story. And the work of the Friends of Mile Creek in organising the annual commemoration, I think, is one of the most moving and important aspects of reconciliation today. I think they are setting. Uh, ideas forward about how we should be doing it. And I haven't talked about the fact that the descendants of the perpetrators, as well as the descendants of the survivors, um, are really coming forward and meeting together. And I think that's another important aspect of Mile Creek that should not be overlooked. And it's something that is being I think trying to be adopted by other uh, groups of people who are commemorating other major massacre sites in Australia. Yeah, no, definitely the the, the more need for people coming together. Um, yes, and 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 this in itself, the Mile Creek Memorial, uh, is an example that it can be done and it should be done, and you know. Yes. Um, you know, it's 20, not easy to do. Yeah. It's taken a long time for it to start to happen. Mm. Um, but uh, each year there's usually one or two um, descendant families who will turn up, um, some years more than others, depending on what's going on. And I think COVID has played a big role now. But it, it's very important. And um, in other years, sometimes... They have spoken uh, some, and I think it's um, a gradual uh, coming together, which I think the Friends of Mile Creek have really promoted to a great extent. Mm, oh, definitely. You know, I think something like this um, and the way that they've presented it every year has sort of been put on, you know, uh, a national sort of um, yes. calendar. It should be. Yes. Um, and as well as other places as well. And, you know, it's a credit to the organisers because when I was there, I think there were schools from Sydney, Canberra, you know, I even think from Queensland as well that have been um, um, a part of it as well, you know. Um, But, yeah, as I said before, thank you for coming on, uh, you know, uh, once again as well. Um, I love, you know, the insight that you give um, and the honesty and the truth, um, 
with the work that you do do as well. I do urge um, listeners of this podcast to please check out uh, Professor Linda Ryan's work uh, that she has continued to do um, as well. The massacre map is uh, is a beginning uh, where people should start as well. Um, I might have to get you back on to have a chat about sort of the next stage of uh, the massacre map as well. Um, and just for people listening, uh, thank you for tuning into um, episode 21 uh, with Professor uh, Lyndall Ryan having a chat about Mile Creek uh, Memorial. Um, and don't forget, you can donate to the podcast and become or become um, you can become a patron or even donate to the to my PayPal, which is on uh, linked, uh, which is linked on my Instagram, which is uh, uh, Bonos eighty nine. Um, and you know, if you have stories uh, of massacres or, or of resistance um, and conflicts that happened on uh, on the frontier in the first hundred and forty years, please get in contact with me because I'd love to record um, you know more stories um, as um, as I come in contact with other people. And I know there's many more to come as well.